Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark, also Hugh Sign. Today our guest is multi-Grammy award-winning keyboardist Matt Fink, best known by his stage name Dr. Fink who was part of Prince's bands, I I shall say bands, from 1978 to 1991. He performed on some of Prince's biggest selling albums of all time, ranging from Dirty Mind through Graffiti Bridge, and including, of course, the 25 million selling album Purple Rain, and also appeared in the movie. And Fink didn't just play in The Revolution, he was also part of MPG, Madhouse, and in 2016, The Revolution came back together after Prince's death for some live performances, etc. So, He's also worked over his career with other musicians, including uh, P. Diddy, The Time, Snoop Dogg, The Rembrandts, and many more. So welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Matt Fink, better known as Dr. Fink. Hi, guys. How's it going? I took a little dive into your uh, some of your stuff in your catalog and saw the Blackstone Funk Revival Life and Love remix video today. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a cool tune, some... The, the bass player's doing some nice old school Larry Graham popping on that thing. And, you know, I kept waiting and I kept looking. I said, I don't see, I, I don't see Matt. And about two, two and a half minutes in, man, you come in just blazing 
with a keyboard solo. They let you go there. Now, I can't remember. Was I in the video? Yeah, you're in the video. I must have phoned that one in then. I, you know, it's, you should also check out, if you haven't yet, check out the Jelly Bean, the new video there, too. That I didn't see the video, but is it the song Renaissance? I'm in the video. They cut me into that one, too. I had to go to a separate studio and, and phone, phone that one in, too. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a cool song. I dug the Carnival uh, Barker voice in the verses. Yeah, both of those tracks were really fun and, and great retro funk. And uh, um, Tony Providence is the drummer in the funk revival group. And he, he's a good friend of mine. I've worked with him over the years, I think off and on, because he's in the Bay area, but I, I get out there occasionally and work with him and some other people do some live things. Probably eight years now or longer, 10 years. It's going on 10, I think, since I started doing a few things with him. Dane cites that Life and Live piece, and that was the first one I listened to this morning. And I was impressed with your restraint your, your kind of clean chop, how you can restrain yourself until you step into the solo. You support the song. You serve the song until, of course, you have a spotlight on you. And then your technique was brilliant. I mean, it's really good. Oh, well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I, uh, I'm getting older now. I think I, I hope I've learned a few things over the years. You know, we all learn when not to play, I think. Is, you know, yes, exactly. Exactly. What it's, not to do is more important than what to do sometimes. So, yeah, especially in the funk music realm, it's all about, you know, finding the right spaces and uh, the, the right part. Sure. The other one I saw, uh, Giving It Up, Drew Chin. There's a breakdown in that in a fantastic, I mean, it's like, again, you're featured for quite a little piece of that song. Very cool, man. Again, super lightning chops and very tasteful, very cool sounds. And it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, I mean, you kind of have a sound with your keyboards that's not just your technique, but the actual tones and whatever patches you're using or, or combinations of, you know, thereof, which, of course, you've been doing for decades now. So, you know, kudos, man. Really nice stuff. When the 80s did hit and the PPG came out, the uh, Fairlight came out and the Oberheim 8 voice came out and the and all the Kurzweil stuff. What drew, which, which toys drew you in? Which ones did you gravitate towards? Uh, well, you know, every year that I was with Prince, I, I always introduced the latest technology to him. Uh, I was kind of like the guy that did that in the band. Uh, sometimes as the keyboardist, along with Lisa. Lisa also was you know, did that as well at times, but, uh, I did it quite often and would always go to Prince at the beginning of like the year, even it, if we were rehearsing or working on a new album or a tour, I, I would go out and, and find the latest tech and bring it into rehearsal. And I would just play and show it to him and say, what do you think of this? I kind of like this. Do you think we should get one? And then you'd either give it a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down, you know. Did you find those keyboards? Um, I I know that sounds, I mean, great example is uh, Phil Collins in the air tonight, just that soft legato Prophet 5. Yeah. He stole sound for every musician thereafter. You couldn't use that sound. Right, exactly. Did those technologies drive? I, I think so. I just know that uh, early on, Prince... You know, when, when he signed to Warner Brothers, they gave him a budget. 
actually for equipment. And he went out and just bought the latest keyboard stuff that was happening back then. And when I auditioned for the group, I walked into this audition and there were also all these great keyboards in there that I couldn't afford yet. And it was just amazing. And uh, I brought my mini Moog and my clavinet and my Fender Rhodes and some other thing. I can't remember what it was. Maybe it's a string synthesizer of some kind that I had back then. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't have, I had a thing called a Freeman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember that thing? Okay, so so I walked into the to that, and then he had two Oberheim four-voice SEM module synths from, you know, like 78 when those came out, or 77. And um, Nice and fat. He had an ARP pro soloist, which he used on the song Soft and Wet as the solo uh found on there and uh so it, it was really interesting because i'd never play and oh he had a polymog too i forgot about that so so the polymog was used on a few things or quite a few things on the first album and the second album once i was in the group of course which was after the first album had been completed by him and all by him <laughs> Uh, that's when I started to say, Hey, hey, let's get the new OBX that's coming out for Oberheim. So every year I, you know, I'd say, Let's get the XA now. Okay. Let's get the OB8. Uh, let's get some of these other Oberheims too to try out and, uh, transition from that stage where you say you couldn't afford the gear. That must have been complete black and white heaven for you. Oh, yeah. Total. I, I walked in there and just said, Wow, the, he's got the latest tech here. So I'm, I'm, I'm in. Please hire me. Please hire me. <laughs> yeah, right. That's awesome. Yeah. Tell us real quick, if you would, just how you got the gig with Prince back in the day. I was about, I think, I was pretty young at the time, 19 or 20, I think, when Bobby Z, the drummer, brought me Prince's demo tape to listen to because his older brother, David, had produced Prince's demos that were used to shop to the record labels in 19, late 77, right? And... uh so he he I knew Bobby because we we lived in the same community and uh, he was a couple years ahead of me but we went to the same high school so when he was a senior you know, I was in tenth grade but we knew each other through music and uh, one evening he came out to hear a, a band I was in at that time uh, just a you know a club band playing covers and he brought me out to his car and said hey, I, I want you to hear this demo tape from this young uh, artist and I go okay. So he played it for me and I said, um, this is fantastic. Uh, what's the name of the band? And he said, it's not a band. I go, what do you mean it's not a band? He goes, it's, it's one guy in the studio producing and writing the whole thing on every instrument and playing everything himself. With my brother engineering, of course. And I said, and co-producing a bit, but Prince really did it all. And I said, you've got to be kidding. How old is he? And he goes, he's your age. <laughs> so at the time, you know, I'm a few wow. months older than Prince, but he, he, I think he was 19 at the time when he did that. And so I, I was so impressed that I just said, look, you know, you, you obviously wanted me to hear this for a reason. Are you thinking of putting a band together around this guy? And do you know him? And he goes, yeah, I'm working for his manager as a, an assistant and, and helping Prince get around and, showing him the ropes a bit in the industry. And Bobby was quite young, young at the time too. He, he was like 22, 23 probably, but knew more about the ins and outs of the 
music business a little more than Prince and myself. So um, from there, uh, fast forward to fall of 78. So he, he got his record deal. He had most of the band members in place and was still auditioning keyboardists at that time. I had heard about the auditions taking place kind of through the grapevine. And also I'd call Bobby occasionally and say, Hey, uh, how can I get an audition? He says, well, we'll see. We're, we're Prince had a few people in mind right now that are ahead of you, unfortunately. So that happened. So I had to kind of wait my turn. Uh, finally, I, uh, he still hadn't found someone he wanted. And then I got the opportunity to about October of 78 audition for the band. And after that, uh, that was it. I mean, he, uh, he went with me, but I did have to wait a good three weeks before he came to a final decision. So I was. How was the, uh, and, how, and what was it like to be in generally speaking in his airspace? I mean, clearly having listened to what he accomplished by himself at 19, was it intimidating or, or was it inspiring when you got in the room with him? I'd say both because a, here was like the only artist in Minneapolis at that time that had a, ma a major label deal, let alone uh, someone like a Stevie Wonder type of person to do it all in the studio. And, and he's so young and talented, uh, such a prodigy, really. And and so, yeah, it's it was intimidating. You know, um, I just I'm just a keyboard player. I never learned much guitar. I, I'm pretty good, great. You know, I've learned to be a great drum programmer over the years. But uh, and I and I even played drums a little bit live for fun, just to, to dabble in it. But um, for him, he was so fluent on all those instruments equally, in my opinion, that it, that it was really amazing. So he was like a cross between Stevie and Todd Rundgren and other people I looked up to, you know, at that time. So um, yeah, it was it was really really fun. And so I just said to him, I said, "Look, um, there's this one song you're single. It's called Soft and Wet." which I really like, but I can't hear the clavinet part. It's mixed in too well. I, it's, I'm have, having trouble picking it out and I have to play it for the audition. So could you show me the part? Actually show me, you know, play it for me a few times and then I'll see if I can get it, you know, see if I'm, I'm close to what I've learned from what I've heard or not, you know? So he did that. He agreed to that. And then within, you know, five, 10 minutes of, of watching him, I, I played the part for him. And I think that's what, impressed to hire me because you know you say keyboard player and so much of that is textural and supportive and, and percussive entrepuntal which is you all but 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 then i also stumbled into the whole area as, assuming this is all you as well but music of vampires that project yes yes the piano solo in midnight seduction is wonderful um and also you're again your reserve and your kind of Eric Satie vibe in uh trance romance is beautiful. That's as a piece, it's just beautiful. But I make the distinction what people often think of in terms of keyboard player. I mean, you have keyboards a la Tony Banks, but then when he steps up, oh, he really can play, you know. Um, because so so often keyboards are supportive and textural, you know. But yeah, kudos to your well, thank you very much. So one thing we were talking, or Hugh and I were talking earlier today about something, I guess I, I should share with you too. So, you know, we talked about Hugh's work on uh, album covers. He's also a uh, keyboard player, piano player. He actually is the guy that's playing at the beginning of Rush's 2112 album on the, on the Overture. That's Hugh. So 
when he's talking about all this stuff, apparently he's convinced us he does know what the hell he's talking about. So just so you know. <laughs> but anyway, so we were talking this morning and I was saying, you know. By the way, I'm a huge Rush fan, just so you know. Oh, cool. Okay. okay. Nice. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of walking into a band, I happen to be in a, a band on the same label as Rush, which is how I was introduced to the band. Um, but it was also how I joined a band when I couldn't afford equipment. I walked into the room with a CP70, a, a double manual Mellotron. Oh, cool. Fender Rhodes. It was a great day for me because I'd already been a huge King Crimson Moody Blues Beatles fan. So having, having these toys. You and me both. So in our in our conversation this morning, I, I was I was saying, you know, 2112, you know, when it came out I think in 76, I think, you know, that was kind of in a way kind of ushered in this different era of rock. Right. You know, it was so guitar heavy with, and then came, you know, the, you know, in through the outdoor with Led Zeppelin and all this stuff. And then in the 80s, you know, I was listening back to all those Prince songs from that time frame, which I've heard a thousand times. Um, but it's such a, an interesting you know, how that kind of started and, and had that one sound in the late 70s, early 80s, and then that sound that you were such a huge part of in the 80s um, and such an integral part of it. It's almost like I'm not saying that keyboards doesn't get its due, but when you look back on the history of the success of rock during that time frame, whether it's Rush or Led Zeppelin or Van Halen, Prince and the Revolution, I mean, the keyboards are front and center of really, not even arguably, but their most successful songs. It really was due to the fact that polyphonic keyboards came into yeah. being at that time, which really expanded the horizons for all of us as players. You know, Otherwise, it was just Moog and Art Odyssey. So exactly. It's also fair to say, though, that during the 60s, you know, with the Moody Blues and their their use of, of it's almost textural. It was much more textural, except for people like George Martin, who would step up and do a great piano solo in the middle of a lovely Rita or something like that. So, you know, keyboards have always been kind of an underpinning. John Paul Jones is another example of someone who... He was at the forefront of that stuff, too. Yeah, for sure. All all big influences on me growing up, of course, you know. I read you studied piano seven. You started at age seven? Yeah, roughly seven-ish, six, seven, right in there. And uh, started with the, all the simple melodies that they teach you as a kid. And then moved on to some classical training. And then by the time I was 14, I had uh, a jazz instructor at that oh, great. yeah so from the time i was 14 through my senior year of high school even beyond that i even once i joined prince i even had another uh, teacher for about a year and with my first year with prince because i i wanted to uh study with this other jazz player in town who's just an amazing player and who who were your go-to influences with jazz piano all the greats in that era all the fusion guys like herbie hancock and um Chikoria, I was about to go to him, all those guys, all the fun Keith Jarrett's work. Keith I love Keith Jarrett, you know, and McCoy Tyner and uh people like that for sure. Joe Zawinul? Oh, of course. Weather report forgot him. See, that's the problem. There's so many great ones I listened to growing up that uh He was an early synthesizer guy too. Yeah, yeah, really, really that that was tremendous stuff. I want to talk for a second about your Ultrasound record. And okay. I know that's kind of an old project, uh, with 2001, but I had never come across it. And I just was very impressed with quite a few of the songs. The very first one, Ultrasound, I love the cover. 
also. I'm sure Hugh took notice of that. But the very first song, Ultrasound, man, contagious groove that you created there. Did you did you do all the stuff yourself on this record? Yes, except for the guitars, for guitar. Well, it almost sounded like it could have been. I was wondering if there was if that was a guitar or if that was a guitar sound. There's real guitar and sampled guitar on there. There's some ridiculously fast keyboard runs in that piece. Whoever your female singer is is really great. Thank you. That that was um, a gal who was introduced to me by one of the other singers on the album too, and uh, she's based in Hawaii, but was visiting for a little while. So we we asked her to come in and, and perform on there. But the second tune, Ecstasy, it made me want to go straight to a rave, but they don't let guys my age in those things. So uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's a perfect, uh, perfect tune for that. Yeah, I was being influenced by that whole dance music thing that was going on. Sure. Well, that's what was happening. In the third tune, Nobody Cried, Kind of, it's kind of like a techno Steely Dan kind of a tune. I thought the halftime shuffle and who are, are who's singing on that? That's me. Okay. That's what I was going to say. Is that you, your voice sounds really cool on that song. Are you the male voice that we hear throughout this record? Yeah, yes. Awesome. You do a couple Spanish tinged tunes too. uh, nebulosity. You could probably shop that to Brian Ferry. Uh, it's kind of reminds me of some of his later period stuff. Nice vibe. And the other tune that reminded me of him a little bit, or or Roxy Music Avalon period, was Night Flight, and really nice female vocals on that too. Yeah, it reminded me of that of that of the Avalon period. You know, Roxy Music, really atmospheric. Thank you. I really I really appreciate that. That that album kind of was overlooked a bit because um, it was released independently by me. You know, labels weren't really signing forty. Uh, two-year-old guys at that time i just was inspired to finally do a solo album after you know leaving prince 10 years before practically but the thing is is um it came out on september 10th and then prince was actually helping to promote it a bit on his website he did like the record and there were other artists like sheila e and mark brown and a whole bunch of other prince alumni that were releasing albums that year including myself. So he had them all on one page. Like there must have been seven or eight of them, I swear. Yeah, it was amazing. And and then 9-11 happened and people were just kind of discovering the record that day. On his oh website. man, it was the next day. And then, oh, and then the conversation shifted to 9-11 and then things went kind of funny. I did continue to promote it though uh, for a while after that, you know, and it, it did okay. But it's hard without a, a major label or a marketing company in those days to get the word out enough, you know. Uh, ergo, uh, I thought of doing another follow-up follow album, but I never got around to it in all these years. I just decided to be a co-writer and producer of other projects. Well, it's a cool project, man. I, You should consider doing another one. Yeah, I'm, I am. <laughs> you ever done a project where you, like uh, Steve Winwood and early prints where he just sat in a room and did it all have you ever done a project where you want to dig in and do everything yourself all the drum programming uh, i have done i've done things like that uh for other people producing their projects where i do the drum programming and the keyboard work i've done a number of those over the years but uh yeah i, I mean i that record that, that solo album was just all me 
and uh, a guitar player, two guitar player friends of mine here in Minneapolis. Three, I'm sorry, there were three different guitarists on that on different. Uh, Jim, Jimmy Berenger, Bobby Schnitzer, and Dave Barry, and and all three of those players toured nationally or internationally with various well-known artists over the years. There's another song on there where that I hadn't heard you do anything like that had Barrel House piano on it. I'm gone. Oh, I'm gone. Yeah. That's got some barrel house chops there. Yeah, bluesy, bluesy, blues rocky barrel house. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Who influenced who influenced you in that world of 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 you know two fisted barrel house, Dr. John Leon? Yeah, those guys, Leon Russell and Dr. Yeah, no question, those guys. Even Elton John a bit. You know, of course I, I used to listen to Oscar Peterson, the jazz stride player. And 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 uh, Art Tatum and guys like that. I never quite mastered that style of playing. It's completely trivia, random trivia, but that double metal Mellotron was actually um, a Mellotron that Getty from Rush had bought from Oscar's son. And Getty and, and Rush weren't particularly interested in having Mellotron, even though I played it on the flip side of 2112 um, for the for the song Tears. I, I actually had the opportunity to use a Chamberlain in in 76. There was a group I joined while I was in my senior year of high school that was traveling around the Midwest. They were, they were called Zachariah, just a mainly cover band, doing all the hits of that time. What The guitar player owned a Chamberlain. Yeah. So, man. so we used to do Cashmere by Zeppelin, and I would use that to do the strings. A little more stable than the Mellotron. Uh, if I remember, yeah, and but but if it was in your vehicle, you know, in the in the band van, travel van, and it was dead of winter, forget about it. You you got to bring that slowly up to room temperature, and it won't play. <laughs> dangerous, dangerous condensation too. But go ahead. The were off my Mellotron at all times, and the guy that was you know doing my my keyboard tech work, he soldered a ten turn screwdriver to the capstan control because even without the dead of winter starting your evening, just the lights on stage, just the temperature going up, the instrument kept getting sharper and sharper. So you're always- Oh yeah. I noticed the Prince of the Revolution live record that came out relatively recently. Is there a lot of that material that was recorded back in those days, not just on that tour for, you know, at that time, but uh, was there a lot of that live stuff that's kind of in the vault that we all hear about? Yeah, from each tour, that I did with him, there is probably a, a decent live recording, you know, video wise with several camera shots and stuff. Did you ever see the Love Sexy tour video that they did satellite feed that's been out over the years? I feel like maybe I saw bits and pieces of that a long, long time ago. That's also a really uh, cool show, but it was, it, it used to be, it was primarily on VHS in the European standard, what, what, I can't remember what they called that. It was, it's a different tape standard than what we have in the U.S. So if you had to convert it, it had to be converted properly. But it, it, it was live, several camera shoots, you know, with floating crane cameras, the whole thing, because it was a show in the round. And that was a live feed to other countries. There was a show that was done live, literally live. Uh, and I can't remember where the feed went to. I think we were in Europe when it was taped, and then it went to Japan. I think it went live to Japan and maybe some other countries. So that's how that worked. And then there were 
copies of it out there bootlegged. What year was that? That was 88. Each tour, yeah, each tour, 1999, controversy, dirty mind. There was always something being filmed or videotaped at some point. And yeah, the, the, I thought the quality, what they put out was good and really cool. It was, you know, it was just nice to hear it, you know, I mean, honestly, as a, as a fan of, of the music. But I have to ask, so dating back into the early times of the band and First Avenue and, and obviously the lure that, you know, played into the Purple Rain and the movie and stuff, how competitive was it really? I mean, for, you know, the movie's awesome, but like during that time with Morris Day and the Time and all that kind of stuff, how how competitive, yeah. The competitiveness with the time, that, that whole thing, that, that rivalry that was portrayed in the film, what, what's really interesting about that is... There was some stuff that was definitely happening behind the scenes that you could say, yeah, this is a little bit too close to the movie now. <laughs> no. Oh, really? Okay, really. I don't know about that. But yeah, there were, there there was one moment on the, uh, and this was the 1999 tour, though. This was pre-movie, actually. Maybe that's why it, it kind of went there. But there was an, a, a literal food fight that ensued backstage the second to the last show of the 1999 tour and then the, the the food fight continued backstage for the next evening which was the finale show of that tour and by that evening things got to the level of very almost too serious a serious food fight <laughs> instead of fun it became a war it turned more into a war than being fun <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's great. So, which started as a vegetable or a banana or some fruit being thrown at somebody from a stairwell in these dressing rooms the first night. I think it was a, it was Morris Day and and Jesse Johnson were messing with us. I don't know what it was. I think they started. It. <laughs> of course, they started it. Of course, you're going to say that. That's right. <laughs> or, or it was Bobby who threw something at them. Anyway, they were being they were taunting us about something, and I can't. I personally, I was neutral through the whole food fight. By the way, oh y'all, uh -huh. no, I really was. I did not want to participate in there. Sure. I was. I was forced. It was kind of like you're you you can't help but be forced into it though. Right. You know, right. At some point. You, at one point, you're trying to avoid it, and then they get you. They go after you, and you're done. It's and then, like, it's on, then it's on. Let's then it, go. Yeah, then it's on. So, <laughs> anyway. There's nothing worse than being forced into a food fight. All, 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 all I know is it got pretty drastic, and then the second night, I mean, the time we're dressed up in, in garbage bag costumes and, and shower <laughs> uh, and they were ready. ready. They had dozens of eggs brought in. Oh, no. Prince had management bring pallets of, of banana cream and cream pies in. Nice. Oh, nice. Things were being thrown during the show and after the show. It was, <laughs> well, I mean, I can't okay. even go to There was another issue where, where Jesse said some naughty things to Prince, and Prince said, okay, you want to be like that? Here you go. And he had his bodyguard handcuff him to a coat rack in the uh, locker room of an arena. Nice. Yeah, for a, for a while, just to punish him for talking, you know, S.H. Adam. Adam yeah, you can say that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, you can oh, say it on here, talking, man. Talking, yeah. So, yeah, that, that was a, an interesting moment. It's legendary. I don't know if you ever heard that story. It's been related in other interviews by other band members and in books. And, I miss uh, that. I appreciate I'm glad that. to hear it, though. I yeah, it. it's a legendary food fight. And, and then at the at the end of the night, there was this band that was opening for us on part of that tour, Roger and Zap, which I'm sure you've heard of, right? He, he was a talk box guy, Moog talk box. He was famous for his talk box stuff. 
I said goodbye to him as he was leaving in his entourage. I said, hey, it was really nice to have you out on tour with us, and you're, you're fantastic. And he looked at me like this and went, grown man, grown man. <laughs> just like that. Just like, couldn't believe he it. Say thank uh, you. He just said grown men behaving like little kids. Throwing, throwing eggs, food. throwing cream he pies. Didn't have any part of the food fight. Probably regret saying that now, you know. Back in those days, I mean, obviously, it's like when I talk to my kids about that era of the 80s of Madonna and Michael Jackson and Prince, I'm like, you know, we were all watching and listening to the same things. And so when Purple Rain was being made and then came the movie and then came everything else, I mean, did you guys feel like you were, I mean, it had to be just a ridiculous roller coaster of an experience. Can you take us back just to the kind of the, I guess, that whole ride? As Prince's management used to say, we're about to put you guys in a bubble. You're going to be in a bubble now. Okay, what does he mean by that? You know, <laughs> so, yeah. So then when you're on tour like that, or even 1999, I'd say by 1999, things were getting to be in the bubble peak where you have a fake name at the hotel. So fans can't find you and knock it on your door and figure out where you're staying. What was your fake name? Harold Lloyd, the silent movie actor. That's a good one. I don't use that anymore. So any fans out there come to see the revolution, that's not my my name anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go with something like Phil DeGrave or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just in case. Anything works. It's all good. But it, it, so that, yeah, it was, it, you, you just, things just get to be more travel wise. It's it, nicer travel. You get better accommodations when those things happen and the, the success. Cause in the early years with Prince, you know, we, we were all there at the ground floor, you know, uh, some of us were not everybody's was there up till purple rain, but uh, when you're in on the ground floor, and you're you're roaming with the drummer, which is what I did, you know, for the first few tours, you know, the, you, things were on a budget. It's like any group that's uh, trying to become successful. So were you guys kind of on a semi lockdown? In other words, they wanted to know where you were at at all times. Like if you were in, you traveled to a city, you didn't have to check in or. No, I didn't. I was free to roam and do things. I, my big thing about being on tour is. Uh, if I'm in a, a nice city that I really like or hadn't been to yet, or there were certain things I wanted to see, I was really big on art museums and anything cultural in those cities. I wanted to, to, uh, if I had a day off, I would partake in that whole scene or art galleries, art galleries and things like that. Or other bands, I'd go see other bands. I was thinking, is that driven as so often I hear Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, uh, Ronnie, would they all paint in their spare time? Have, have you got another, uh, like a secret life where you you like to draw and paint and work in the visual world? A little bit on the computer, but not not so much. Um, I used to draw more at a younger age, but these days, no, I haven't gotten back into it. Um, no, my hobbies are um, trying to do some voiceover work on the side, you know, or commercial work. Uh, Soundtrack work, I, I want to get more into incidental or underscore music for video or, you know, shows of some kind, documentary films, things like that. You aspire to full-on soundtracks a la John Williams? I, I don't know if I'm I'm able to do that heavily orchestrated type of material. I can fake it, you know, and I, I've recreated uh, a whole, two different records of horror movie music and 
science fiction movie music that I did back in the mid nineties for a local company here. They wanted re-records of those songs. So I recreated them using all uh, or- orchestral sampled stuff, you know, sampled sounds. Which are much better now, aren't they? Oh, way better. But they they did pretty well with it, though. When you listen, I listen back and I go, that, that's not pretty close, you know. If you ever have a chance, go check out The Best of Sci-Fi and Horror Movie Madness. So that, that was a great learning experience for me from an orchestral standpoint, because I had to learn it all by ear and recreate it. And I do the same thing. I don't have, or- I don't have orchestral and arrangemental uh, training, but I, I think I have an ear for it. But I probably break. Rules where the viola goes way higher than you normally would, or the cello would. You know, I break those rules, but if it sonically sounds fine, then what? You know, yeah. Back to your song, Trance Romance. If you look at a movie like On Golden Pond with like Dave Grusin, which is all piano, just well, and some orchestration, of course. But it would seem to me that you'd be a natural for that, and like Mark Knopfler's work. I don't think it needs to be so, so demanding and orchestral to be in the underpinning part of a of a film. I think I've done a little bit of that work over the years, not enough, you know. And, and being in Minneapolis, um, I was always told I need to move to Los Angeles. But now things are changing. You can do long work now, so I, I, I need to find a way to seek that work out and network more for that kind of work. You know, there are agents that do just shop that. They shop television, broadcast and film. Do you do a lot of that? Are you Have you been doing a lot of that over the years? I occasionally get asked to do some arrangement work, you know, or some piano work. But I, I, like I say, I don't shop myself. I, I'm pretty busy in the visual arts world. Well, Dane, I mean, to be fair, Dane, you, I mean, his new record that Dane just put out the other day has Donovan on it and Elliot Murphy and a bunch of those. A lot of it is honestly, I think just, we were talking about this All up your early. bodies. Yeah. Not only that, but even just, I mean, Dane was asking me, Hey, how'd you get connected with Matt? And I said, I just, I emailed him and you know, I emailed Simon Kirk from bad company and said, Hey, we want to do this. And he replied back in 10 minutes. Yeah, sure. Let's talk. So I think it's almost like all of us are used to living in this space where you have to go through all these layers to get to somebody. And that's still the case in some regard, but not, not like it used to be as far as, you know, as long as you have the credentials, obviously you're, just, you're some, you know, weirdo out there that doesn't really have any credentials to show and that's different. But I think there is that element. I know that's happened with Dane with reaching out for some, uh, John Sebastian, you reached out to him and boom, you heard back from him. Five minutes later. It really is a small world to that metaphor. I mean, it, never have we been so able to just talk to someone anywhere in the world, you know, depending on bedtime, you know, but yeah. And yeah, with your credentials, man. Well, maybe I need to get an agent now. I don't know. Or at least some kind of, you know, I don't, I wouldn't be able to advise, but I do know there are entities and there are even some labels, some divisions within labels that do nothing but shop the music to TV shows. And, you know, I mean, look at all the people that Grey's Anatomy broke, you know. Well, just as an aside, you know, for the last six and a half years since uh, January of 2016, I worked for a local uh, tech based company. And I was there for six years doing really different things I'd never done before because the the guy who was the CEO had known me years ago from uh, helping him produce some records of his and some other artists because he had a small indie label here in Minneapolis. But that was in 04 and 05. So you fast forward to twenty late 2015, he asked me to come on board his company, which he had built up to like uh, five or six divisions, I think, at that time, doing different tech things. and. Uh, software development and 
video gaming, all kinds of stuff. I can't even remember all the divisions. He had an AI division going still. Anyway, regardless, he, he wanted to have me help him develop a music streaming service and also uh, develop a Bluetooth audio product line for his company to sell overseas because all his business is over in Asia and those areas uh, on that side of the planet. So <clears throat> that's what I did. I came on board to do that. I was doing a little music on the side, but it was a nine to five drive to an office building kind of corporate position, which I'd never had in my life. And so the name of the company is ADX Labs, if you ever want to look at that. So we by about end of 2019, he restarted his record label. Right before the pandemic hit, we had five artists, eventually six artists signed to the label. And then long about uh, March of this year, he had to shut things down for a while because of lack of ability to tour for the artists, which was supposed to generate revenue. There were, you know, and, and a lot of the artists were new and didn't have big followings yet. So they really needed to be out there and, and playing. So right now, uh, he's talking to me about restarting things again. Are, are you kind of a, you talk about being a part of sort of developing Bluetooth and so on. Do you go under the hood and, and you're quite technical or do you, are you conceptual? No, it's conceptual and knowing that, you know, listening to the audio side of it to make sure it's working properly. And sounding great and design. There was a little bit of design work too with it with people. But uh as far as the music streaming service was concerned, they wanted to to buy an existing streaming service. And when I looked at it under the hood, I said, This isn't going to give you what you're trying to do conceptually, and it's overpriced. So you need to build one from the ground up, which they did. And it's still there. It's still the software for it. It, it was called MyMyMusic.com or MyMyMusic was the app. And it was strictly for independent hip hop artists at that time, which I disagreed with. I said, I think you should be open to all genres. They said, well, eventually we'll do that. The people that on the team that were kind of like above my pay grade, <laughs> they, they, they said, we really wanted to stick with this genre because it's the biggest genre right now. And I said, yeah, but when you look at, Everything okay, so it's fifty percent market share. Well, why don't you take the other fifty percent and put it on there too? But they they said we're not ready to, and I said fine. That was an experiment. Um, it's still available to to come back out again or you know remarket that that idea. But the the concept was to let artists be be, be on there and then have their fans tip tip them and pay them directly that kind of stuff if they wanted to purchase. Did you have to go over to Asia or to the the companies over there to liaise with them? I personally did not. And and the, the, the majority of the A&R side was in New York and running the label. And I was uh, relegated to sync licensing only at that time to, to try, try to find placements for our artists' songs in television and movies and video games and things like that. And we had some, some moderate success with that. And the two years I was doing it, it wasn't that long of a time. So, and I'm still doing it independently. But if you know, if he restarts the company here, which it looks like it will happen, then I'll I'll be doing a similar job. But uh, I think I'll be more in an A and R position. This is all while you're you're writing and recording your new album. Yeah, exactly. So, so you can well imagine uh, 
during the last six and a half years, up until March of this year, I was really heavily embroiled with that company and, you know, doing a little bit of live playing prior to the uh, pandemic, the revolution was out playing all over the place in 2017, 18 and 19. Are there further plans for the revolution at this point or who knows? Yes, uh, just not at this time. Wendy and Lisa, of course, who are in Los Angeles, uh, grew up there. Uh, they're highly successful soundtrack artists, and they're currently working on two TV shows out there. They work pretty regularly, although they took a hiatus from that work when they were touring with the Revolution. You're clearly a Beatle fan. That is your project, right? The one that has the Ed Sullivan intro to... Oh, the Hooker and Beatles project for KTL? Yeah. I was hired to do that project, yeah. Is that you singing? Um, I'm doing background harmonies on some of those songs. Depends on the song, but that is not me singing. That is a gentleman by the name of Tim Guerin, a local, also fellow Prince fanatic. I brought him in because he had a voice that, unfortunately, he passed on, but a rest in peace, good friend of mine. And um, he sounded like a cross between Paul and John. The tone, the tone of the two of them. If I Fell was a really lovely um, performance, the vocalist on that. His voice on that was nice. And Sergeant Pepper, too, the range on that. He, he nailed that one. I like the intro on that one. That was the first project I did after I left the Prince fold. And uh, Prince's former manager, first manager, Owen Husney, was working for uh, KTEL Dominion Entertainment here in Minneapolis. And he asked me to produce that record. That was 1991 when that was done. It wasn't allowed to be released until the estate of John Lennon and Paul McCartney had to hear it and Yoko Ono had to hear it for approval. And they approved? They did. So this is the same KTEL records that we used to see at uh, advertising golden hits back in the 70s? Yeah, okay. hooked, on, hooked on classics classics and stuff. It, they had a whole hooked on a whole hooked on music series of re-records. And that was one of them. I did another one called hooked on romance. And, you know, there are all these different hooked on series I did for them back then. And they also sold uh, vegetable choppers too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. right. The Vegematic. Yeah. yeah. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. It was a good way for me to cut my teeth as a producer because prior to that, I hadn't really produced anything yet. I was just a session player. So it was, it was, those were great projects too. Did uh, you have to dissect all the Lennon and McCartney arrangements for all that? All of it. All of it. Nicely done. Yeah. Cause I was, I was listening to the horn parts and so on in uh, that medley, you know, some of the, the George Martin. Uh, it sounds like the, the Oberheim sort of big, t the one that looked like an operator telephone. Was that, was that the 2500 or something? It was the one with a huge patch bay on it. It just sounds like the one they used in Maxwell Silverhammer and, Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just know I tried to match the sounds as best I could. I, I, I worked very hard on that record. Again, a, a total learning, lovely learning experience delving into the, the Beatles song. Nice catalog to work with. Yeah. Especially when you're dissecting. It's one thing to just listen to it and appreciate it. But when you start down, that's a whole other back to university kind of experience. Yes. You got to really... Uh, use your uh, relative pitch ear training <laughs> to get it. I wish I had perfect pitch, because, but I don't. I was not born with that. My, my wife has it, and one of my sons has that talent. And I used to work with other people that had that talent, and they used 
some of those musicians could write Steely Dan chord charts out while the songs were playing because they could hear what chord it was. And they just write the chart as the song was playing for me. They, they'd write it for me so I could learn the song. <laughs> those zebra chords too, yeah. right? Those are like chords on top of chords. Exactly. So yeah, there's some really gifted people out there with, with perfect pitch that have that ability, which I envy. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, or if any of you guys are. Do you know that there's a Beatles book out? A buddy of mine's got it. It's very expensive. It's huge. It's got all the drum parts written out. It's got all the bass lines written out for every song from the first album through Let It Be. Wow. It's pretty wild, but it might have helped you a little bit if you want to know what what's the bass line on Lovely Rita. Oh, well, there it is. Somebody sat and figured it out. Yeah, I, I managed I managed to get it uh, pretty well, I think. But just as another aside, in November of 2019, before the shit hit the fan, <laughs> I always say that. The last thing I did was before COVID. No. <laughs> so I, I, I had the opportunity to be a counselor at the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp in Los Angeles, Beatles edition, with Cheap Trick performing with us in varying incarnations. And and when we did when we we did the the, the entire Sgt. Pepper album with a, a full on uh, orchestra. Wow! Wow! That's impressive. That's great. That was fun. So where was the rock and roll fantasy camp at? Where where they do that at? It was in Los Angeles. Um, it, they they rehearsed at Amp uh, rehearsal spaces there, right uh, in I think it's in, near Universal kind of Studio City. And then uh, the performances took place at the Viper Room, and then the Whiskey A Go Go for the finale, right across the street from each other. Got was it. it just Cheap Trick, uh, like the full band, and or were there other guys too? Just Cheap Trick, and they they did a whole Q and A with audience members before the show, and then they each came up at different times by themselves or in combinations of each, of the group to perform with each group of people because there were like I think there were like twelve of us or eleven. I can't remember for sure how many counselors there were. There may have been eight or nine. I, I just can't remember the exact number. But each group had a, a certain amount of songs they did first. They they come up and do three song set or four song of, of other Beatles stuff that had nothing to do with Sgt. Pepper. And then each group had like one Sgt. Pepper song that they would do with the orchestra and a cheap trick member. Just so much fun. I, 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 that's one of the more fun evenings of, I've ever had. We always like to kind of ask those pinch me moment questions. And I was going to ask that, but I guess that sounds like that was one of those. So that was sure. one of them. That was one of them. Uh, another pinch me moment was, uh, over the years is always a meeting, uh, other artists who I had, uh, admired and looked up to growing up, you know, people that were older than me that inspired me. And I, I got to meet a number of those people when they came to see Prince shows. And that, who, that was who are some of those? Yeah, tell us about that. Mick Jagger mm. comes to mind right away because with him, I was able to actually sit down and shoot the breeze with Jerry Hall was married to him at the time. And the two of them were at the show <clears throat> after show uh, party. He sat down with me and had a drink. He just said, hey, mind if we sit sit down with you? We were I was there a little early sitting at a table with my soon to be a uh, wife, we, we got to hang out, which was really cool. Just to be one-on-one -on -one with someone like that, who you, who you fantasize about as a performer. And then they're, you know, down to the human level, they're not up on the uh, fantasy pedestal that you put them on growing up, you know, <laughs> yeah, if you know what I mean, you get starstruck. I mean, I'd get starstruck by that. 
and um, uh, George Michael and uh, him. Eddie Murphy used to come to shows. Bruce Springsteen. They'd come hang out backstage with us before shows. Uh, Stevie Wonder, Huey Lewis, people like that. Just I could go on and on. Sting, Sting came up. You know, Did you ever have any one-on-one with your keyboard? idols or the people that you like did you ever stumble over leon or elton or yeah and elton john uh, i met him briefly in in los angeles at an award show i think it was the mtv music awards same same for um aerosmith members and i i'd met them before too van halen people and been backstage with them doing stuff what an amazing era that was i mean you know you and anybody that we've talked to on the podcast that bon jovi you know keep going I met a lot of those guys. Yeah, it was really, really exciting. These are clients of mine too, by the way. <laughs> who, who are? Well, I, I worked on Get a Grip um, with Steve and Joe um, and John Kaladner. Have you have you met John? No. He was a, the bearded fellow in. Uh, Dude looks like a lady. Yeah, he was Italy. some of their videos. Yeah. Yeah, I know the name. I know who John is. I never had a chance to meet. Well, he. He was the golden ears of Geffen, who signed White Snake and Peter Gabriel and Sammy Hagar and, and Aerosmith and all these. Yeah, but you know, just on the strength of my six-week visit to the to Los Angeles, which ended up being sixteen years, it's the kind of city before internet that you did have to kind of live in to make the connections. Um, not now, not so much now, but it, it certainly served served the purpose of you know my un, uh, unpacking Toronto and moving down to LA for 16 years. It was cities where you couldn't stop meeting people, which was fun. It was great. My son, my, my son is living in LA for the last six and a half years and he's entrenched in the music industry and met a lot of people. Is he, is he a player or a producer? Yes, he's a pr- producer, a keyboardist. And uh, he, he, his, um, stage name is Max Millie spelled M V X M I L L I. I, I should have brought him up sooner because I wanted to promote him a little bit on the show. He, he, has, a, he has music out on uh, Spotify and also SoundCloud, probably iTunes. And then um, he also has, is in a video that he collaborated on the song with the, a new EDM artist, fairly new, a couple of years out now, a guy named Darko, spelled, spelled D-V-R-K-O. And that, that video's gotten well over a million-something views now. Yeah, so he's getting some recognition out there. And I'm excited for him because he's on the cutting edge of that pop music sound that's happening these days, you know. Have you ever collaborated with him? Or yes. Just too- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When he was in high school, I helped produce his band that they had going at the time. They were doing originals, and they had label interest. Not not anything I did though. I didn't do that. It was somebody else got the labels interested in them, and I recorded their demos. and uh, And then the lead singer, a female singer, decided she wanted to go off to college and study theater instead. And then the band broke up. But then he went out there, and she's out there again, and they've reconnected. So it's it's interesting. But he's 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 doing some really interesting material, in my opinion. And he he's. Uh, Definitely has an original sound to what he's doing. Spell his project name again. Uh, it's, it's spelled M V X M I L L I, and that's Max Milley is how you say that. And uh, and then he's got this song with Darko, D V R K O. He has a song called uh, 
Deeper, featuring Max Milley. And it's DVRKO featuring Max Milley, M-V-X-M-I-L-L-I. What's interesting is when they met each other, they didn't know that they were spelling their names with the V replacing the A in the name in all capital letters. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting, too, that, that some of the I don't know if they're copying other people or if they just coincidentally put that DV for the A instead as their monikers, you know, which is interesting. Has that proved confusing? I mean, I would look at that and I would either think it was some kind of Greek or Roman numbers. So it can be, but apparently in in the pop music world, the the more quirky, the better. And then they hear the name and then they'll look at it, the visual of it and associate it. If you market that properly, I think it can work actually as as a logo or name for an artist. But I questioned it just like you did, but go ahead. I, I know another musician who kind of bravely decided to represent himself with a single symbol. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. And then and then I've been working with uh, another gal here in town since she was a, a youngster, 17-year-old gal. She's now 23 almost. And she's she's uh, just graduated Berkeley School of Music's Summa Cum Laude in vocals and getting ready to start her uh, master's degree studies over there. In fact, she just talked to me yesterday and said, will you sign a letter going to Berkeley for me? I go, sure, I will. No problem. Recommending you, of course. So uh, so her name is Michelle Rose, also her stage name, not her real last name, but Michelle Rose. And if you go to Michelle Rose Music on YouTube, she has quite a few videos there. Some, uh, a, a lot of that stuff was produced in written by me. Um, she's now starting to do more writing on her own with lyrics and melody. And then I, she's got two Halloween songs that were just released right now with videos attached to them. One called Love Potion and one called Midnight Moon, I think. She co-wrote with my son. I sent, I, I sent her to my son. I said, work on these songs with him. He'll give you more a more uh, contemporary vibe than what I've been doing for you. Do you enjoy uh, writing with a female voice in mind? Yeah, I get that totally. I mean, anytime I hear Cindy Lauper or Bjork or, or or Paula Cole or people like that who are just yeah, no, I I love working with female artists. But I'm on a, I'm on a heavy rock project right now with some guys out in Philly, and and Kenny Aronoff played drums on some of these tracks. Oh, really? Yeah, Kenny, of course. Yep. Yeah, I, I knew you would. So Kenny's on some of that, and this is some some dudes that are based in, in Philly, and it's more rock and roll. What's know? the name of that man? So are you playing keyboards on it? I'm playing keyboards on it, and it's it's called the name of the project is called Kelvin Twenty Seven. Nothing's been released, and it's a total sci-fi game. So is for a contribution, like when you say rock and roll, that could be rockabilly, that could be uh, full on like. You know, 80s. It's got it's got heavy, heavy sounding guitars on it and lots of lots of uh, grinding Hammond and and synthesizer. So it's it's more you know like deep purple meets contemporary rock with synthesizers. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. 